Today's reading is taken from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 15, and chapter 14, verses 1 to 10. And in the Church Bible is on page 222. If you need a copy of the Bible, there are ones being handed out. Please raise your hands. So it's uh, chapter, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13, page 222. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him in Michmash and in the hills country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gabiah, in Benjamin. The rest of the men were, he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines' outposts in Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpets blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So Israel heard the news. So has attacked the Philistine outposts, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul in Gilgal. The Philistine assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed. They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, so remained in Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And so offer up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistine will come down against me in Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the commands the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you have established your kingdom over Israel all, for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went out to Gibeah in ben- Benjamin, and so counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. We move to chapter 14, verse 1. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go to 
go over to Philistine outposts on the, out, the other side, but he did not tell his father. So was staying out on the outskirts of Gilead under the, a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was son of Igabod, brother of Achibotab, and son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shirod. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozad and the other Sinai. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south to Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then, we'll cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we'll wait, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we'll climb up, because that will be our sign that the law has given them to, into our hands. This is the word to the Lord. Thanks, James. If you can keep your Bibles open to chapters 13 and 14 as we go through it, that would be great. Let's pray that God will speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples. We thank you for the message of the gospel that even as we stray far from you, even as we fail again and again, you pursue us and you protect us, you love us, you rescue us. And Lord, we pray that we would know how sovereign and powerful you are today. We would know how loved we are by you today. We pray that you'll speak to us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you might have, I'm sure you have seen this picture before. Um, What do you see when you see see this picture? If you look one way, you'll see a young woman looking away. How many of you see that first? Yep. How many of you see an old lady, an old hag looking away? Raise your hand. Yep. Apparently, there was a study done with this uh, recently published in 2009 or something like that. If you're older, apparently you see older person more. <laughs> if you're younger, you see younger person more. <laughs> anyway, uh, from a different perspective, you see different uh, things. And, but how you see this picture is really not important. But how you look at the world, how you look at the world, what you see when you see the world, uh, well, that's... A whole different story. In these chapters, in chapters 13 and 4, we, 14, we see two different perspectives. One of a fool, unfortunately in this case, of Saul's perspective. And we see another perspective from Jonathan's perspective, a person who's faithful. The world can distinguish the faithful and the fool apart very easily, but God can When Saul was anointed back in chapter 10, verse 5, he was tasked to deal with Philistines who effectively were ruling over Israel. 
although he fought against the Ammonites, as we saw last week, he hadn't done anything about the Philistines. And surprisingly, the first person, as we see, who act against the Philistines is not King Saul. Take a look in verse 1, right? It's, it's Jonathan. Jonathan, although in verse 3, King Saul takes the credit for it. And Philistines react swiftly. They mobilize their armies. They get 3,000 charioteer, uh, chariots, which were like tanks b- back then, and 6,000 charioteers and uh, soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And so Israelites start to panic, and they start to hide all around the, uh, the country, in the caves, in the thickets, rocks, pits, and cisterns, and some flee the country altogether. And Saul doesn't seem to be doing anything. He, ha- he and his soldiers are in Gilgal in verse 7. He's not doing anything. They might have asked, Saul, king, why aren't you doing more? The reason was back in chapter 10. Back in chapter 10, Samuel told Saul to stay put in Gilgal for seven days. For seven days, he was supposed to be there. And at the end of seven days, uh, Samuel said he would return, offer sacrifices, and then tell him what to do. Now, it looked like cowardice to people. It might have looked like cowardice uh, to uh, uh, the people, but Saul was actually acting in faith. He was obeying the words of God. He was obeying the words of Samuel. But obeying God was getting harder day by day. They were surrounded by these uh, chariots and charioteers, and the troop was already quaking in fear, and the number was dwindling because people are deserting the army one by one, day by day. And we see now later on, there are only 600 people left. So on the seventh day, Saul felt that he really needed to do something. So in verse 9, chapter 13, verse 9, he offered up the burnt offerings as Samuel said he would offer. And just as he finished making the offering, he saw a sight that would have made him glad. It was Samuel. But Samuel didn't look happy. When he came, he says to him, What have you done? And the implication is, yes, you waited, but you didn't wait the whole time. He disobeyed Samuel's words and therefore God's words. This is how a commentator describes the situation. Feel the weight of this as the episode presents it to us. To obey God for Saul was an extraordinary thing to ask, considering the circumstances. We might reasonably say that it was close to impossible. Why? Because to obey God in those circumstances would have required him to trust God against every instinct, against every evidence, against every aspect of his experience at that moment. The Philistines were coming in massive numbers and the Israelites were slipping away and everybody was terrified. And so he took the matter into his own hands. hands. He was faithful until it got tough. We sympathize because that's actually what we do. Many of us, we generally do the Christian things. We come to church, we tithe, we are, we're kind, we're ethical. Well, until often when it gets really tough, we generally forgive, right? Until we find people who we really can't forgive, who make us really mad. Maybe for, for you, it might be the protesters. It might be the government. Well, we can't forgive them. When we're single, we generally look for Christians to date until we reach a point and we start thinking, well, if I go like this, I'll never get married. I need to take the matter into my own hands. 
we're generally ethical in our workplaces until maybe you see the balance sheet and then go, oh, there wasn't enough. Or maybe you, are w- w- way, uh, you, you think the recession is going to hit. Well, how, how, what can I do? We might bend. We might start bending our principles. We're often faithful until things get tough. And that's the faith of a fool. And that's what Samuel is called in verse 13. Right? You have done a foolish thing, Samuel says to Saul. And that's not saying that you've done a silly thing or a stupid thing. That, biblically speaking, a fool is somebody, uh, uh, Psalm 14.1, somebody who says in his heart that there is no God. A fool knows that God exists in his mind, but he doesn't act according to that knowledge because the heart is the command center of his life, and in his heart there is no God. So when push comes to shove, when we're really pressed, we give in and we disobey like a fool. Although we might sympathize, God's verdict is clear. This story goes on to show how Saul should have reacted by giving us Jonathan's reaction. If you look at, take a look at verse 17, chapter 13, 17. Philistines raiding parties were sent out to the north and the west and the east. They were dominant all over Israel. Verses 19 to 21 describe one way Philistines kept control over Israel. They took out all the blacksmiths. There were no blacksmiths in Israel so that Israel could not make any weapons. And they were making big bucks. They cornered the blacksmithing market, right? That they had to go down to Philistia in order to get any weapon made. The only people in Israel who had weapons were King Saul and his son, Jonathan. And just as it was desperate for for Saul, it should have been desperate, hopeless for Jonathan as well. And geography was stacked against them, too. In order to reach these Philistines, they had to climb over this chasm and cliffs. The the cliffs are named, it's literally named, Slippery and Thorny. But look at what Jonathan does in chapter 14, verse 1. He takes risks for God's glory. He says, let's go to Philistine outpost. In verse 6, come, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. When Saul saw the world, he saw chariots. He saw charioteers. He saw uh, soldiers and weapons and armies. Jonathan saw the same things, but he describes these soldiers as uncircumcised men as enemies of God. In his world, as he saw the world, he saw God and God's enemies. He saw what God can do, that he could save by many or by a few. And some people say, sense a sliver of doubt in the word perhaps, perhaps the Lord will act, as Jonathan says. And you might know people who teach that we're not supposed to say anything like perhaps, but to name and claim our blessings with certainty with conviction. But let's be clear, Jonathan is not doubting God's power, but God's purpose. God has the power, but is it God's will? We can't presume to, that God will do our will. God's not a genie who helps us, right? God's not a genie who does what we want him to do. So as he climbs, he says, he'll take the soldiers saying, come up to us as a sign that God had given them. 
uh, into their hands, and that's what happens. Philistines shout, verse 14, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan and his armor bearers go up to Philistine camp, and God teaches them a lesson. Jonathan is victorious. The whole, there's an earthquake. The whole camp shakes in fear. There's a panic. They start killing each other because they are so afraid. A fool gives up when things get tough. The wise, with God in their hearts, takes, take risks, putting, some, uh, putting themselves in positions where God can use them. And through Jonathan, we see Saul's foolishness even more clearly, don't we? Because we see how Saul only acts when there's no more risk. You know, when he thought that he would lose, remember, he was sitting under a pomegranate tree, not doing anything. But when his enemies, verse 16, chapter 14, 16, are melting away in all directions, he springs to action. He calls for the Ark of the Covenant, probably to ask God what to do next. But he doesn't actually do that. He calls that off in verse 19 because he hears that actually Israelites are winning. The the, the Philistines are in, in panic. And so he calls that off. No need to ask God anymore. He, in verse 20, enters the battle. What leadership? Join the battle when actually there's no more risk of losing. And we see the result, though, in God's grace in verse 23. The Lord saved Israel on that day. The Lord saved Israel on that day. But look at the next verse. But the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. On the day of the victory, when they won, the soldiers were hard-pressed on the same day. Why? Well, because of Saul. Because when he saw the Israelites are winning, he wanted to lean into it. He commanded the Israelites not to eat on that day. Verse 24. Cursed be anyone who eats food before the evening comes, before I've avenged myself on my enemies. The soldiers, they were fighting on an empty stomach. Even as they were winning, they felt hard-pressed because they needed to obey Saul's command. Later on, verse 36, Saul wants to command the soldiers not to sleep, to pursue the Philistines into the night. Why? Because he lacks faith. Because, you see, both inaction and frenetic actions stem from not trusting in God. Saul said and did nothing because he thought that he would lose. He was afraid. He didn't trust God, so he did nothing. But when he starts to see that things are changing, he can't stop. He can't stop because he can't see that it's God who's bringing victory to them in the first place. And since he doesn't trust in God, he has to do it. And if he has to do it, he can't rest. He can't eat. He can't sleep because this might be the only chance that he can win. He needs to capitalize on the opportunity. He can't rest because he's in control because he's a fool who doesn't have God in his heart. Friends, are we faithful? Are we fools? Do you keep going when things get tough? Do you keep obeying God when things get tough? Do you ever take risks by by putting yourself out there in positions where God can use you? We have the privilege of being with and learning from missionaries all around us. We have many missionaries in our church who have given up, who have taken great risks, people who left their jobs as engineers or even doctor and and, and, uh, uh, accountancy 
people uh, in full-time ministry uh, who moved to a different country to put themselves in positions so that God can use them. Of course, having courage of faith doesn't mean that we should all move to a different country or go into ministry. We're not all called to do that, or are we all gifted in, in doing that? But you can be courageous. We can be courageous in all sorts of little ways. Think about that. Sharing your faith requires great risks, doesn't it? People might laugh at you, reject the gospel, but you do it. Because as you share the gospel, you're putting yourself in a position where God can work through you. God can save somebody through you. To ask somebody to meet, to read the gospel of Mark, well, they might reject you or laugh at you or whatever, but it takes uh, courage to leave work early. To come to prayer meeting, well, that takes courage time to time, doesn't it? To say to your boss, I need to go. I need to go and pray. Resting. Keeping the Sabbath holy in Hong Kong takes great faith and courage too. The competition is fierce in this city. But we can't be like Saul, who can't rest. Because we know that God reigns. God is in control over our lives, over the city, over the world. And if you're a parent, can I ask how you're raising your children? To be courageous for God or to take the safest ways as possible? Let me phrase it this way. Do you want your children to be professionals? Because you really think that before the creation of the world, God has designed your children to be accountants, to be lawyers, to be doctors. Or is it that you think, well, this city, the competition is so fierce, we can't take any risks. Friends, how courageous is our faith? Nothing wrong with those jobs, by the way, but how how courageous is our faith? Here's the thing. Being faithful, having faith in God looks crazy sometimes. It looked crazy for Saul to wait for Samuel to come. As his army was dwindled to 600 people. He waited. It looked crazy for Jonathan to take on the whole camp, Philistine camp, with just two people with one sword between them. It might have looked, been irrational to not rest, I mean, to, to rest and to sleep when things are hot. But the alternative of the world, of Saul, actually is crazy as well. It's mad. We can see how when we don't trust God, things that are, shouldn't be normal become normal for us. Uh, take a look in, in chapter 14. In hot pursuit, Paul, I mean Saul, sorry, Saul ordered his soldiers not to eat before the evening comes. Before verse 24, I have avenged myself on my enemies. He's completely lost perspective. He's not fighting this battle no longer. He's not fighting for God or for his country. He's fighting for himself until I have avenged my enemies. But Jonathan had not heard of his father's order. And so when he comes across honey, verse 27, he dipped his staff into the honeycomb to eat it. And then his eyes brightened with the rush of energy. When the soldiers tell him that that's not what, tell him what Saul had commanded all the soldiers to do, he laments, verse 30. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today. And taking their cue from Jonathan, the soldiers start eating. They were so hungry, they eat in a hurry. We're told in verses 31 and 32 that they break God's command. Because they were so famished, 
they start eating in a hurry, and they eat these animals without draining the blood, which is against God's command in Leviticus. And when Saul finds out, he says, they acted treacherously, not seeing that it was he who had caused the problem. So he makes a sacrifice to God to forgive their sins. Once again, not realizing what he has done, he, sounds, he looks like he's worshiping, but actually he's not concerned about God at all because the next thing that he wants to do is he wants to order his soldiers to put on all-nighter pursuing these Philistines. His ambition had not lessened. As we saw, uh, and, but the priest then urges uh, the soldiers uh, the, the priest urges Saul to ask God before uh, making that order. So he asks, but God doesn't answer. Saul thinks that this is because someone has sinned. So he make, makes another rash oath in verse 39. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. So Lot is thrown, and actually Jonathan is chosen. Jonathan points out, though, how absurd the situation is. He didn't even hear his father's command. He says in verse 43, I tasted a little honey with the end of my stick. Now I must die. Saul, Saul responds, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Thankfully, the soldiers protest, and Jonathan is saved from his own father. The whole thing is just crazy. Saul was ready to kill the only person who comes out well in these stories, only person who's godly, the only person who trusts in God. Saul's world is so upside down, he can't see the right from wrong. He can't see how seriously in trouble he is in. Saul had the outward appearance of godliness, but inwardly he's just completely driven by his own ambition and was ready to sacrifice even his own son. Unfortunately, although this looks outlandish to us, our world isn't all that different. Crazy things have become the norm when we don't trust God, when we haven't trusted God. Many of you work, I mean, how many of you work 60 hours a week, and you think, well, that's the norm. And you, some of you are thinking, oh, 60 hours, that sounds really nice. I mean, some people are really lazy. That's absurd. You know, most, for most of us, God has provided for, I mean, I know that some people actually don't have any control, but most of us do have some control over how much time that we actually have to work. For most of us, God has provided for us abundantly, more than we need, and yet, often we feel poor. We feel desperate. We feel like we need to keep going. That's absurd. We shudder at the thought of Saul sacrificing his own son. But how healthy is our relationship with our family, with our parents, with our spouse, with our children? Many in Hong Kong say that they're working for their family, but in reality, they've sacrificed their family for in the altar of their ambition. As they keep going, their marriages are breaking apart. They don't even know what's going on in their children's lives. When we don't trust God, madness becomes normal. And that's even when we go to church. Like Saul had the outward appearance of godliness. At the end of the story, though, we get another surprise. If you read chap uh, chapter 14, verse 47, take a look there. 
It's the end of the story, and this is how it ends. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. And on, and then later on, he fought valiantly and defeated, uh, defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. It's a surprise because that assessment, as you read it, is so positive towards Saul. He fought valiantly. He united the country. He rescued people from um, their enemies. You see, Saul wasn't a terrible king by worldly standards. In fact, he was a great king in many ways. He calculated risks. He fought battles that he knew he was going to win. He united the country. He defeated the enemies of Israel. But in God's eyes, he was a fool. He's rejected, not because of his lack of military skills, but because he didn't trust God. Because in his heart, there was no God. You see, we can see the same picture and see two completely different things. You can see a winner. We can be seeing a winner in the world's eyes and be a fool, and, and be a fool in God's eyes at the same time. Friends, let's not be fools. God who reigned over Israel is the head of the church. He rules over our lives, over his people, and God has demonstrated his limitless love through his son, Jesus, who died for us. We can be courageous. We can trust in this God. We can live as wise people with God in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as people whose hearts so frequently stray far away from you. Lord, we know in our minds that you are there, but the way that we live our lives, the way that we make decisions, we live as if you are not in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, we pray that we would know your greatness, your power, and your love, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that we might live differently. Lord, you have done everything possible. You've sent your son, Jesus, to die for us, to tell us that you are God who saves, you are God who loves, that you are God who rules over our lives. Lord, help us to be people who are wise to live in trust and faith of that amazing King, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.